Would you turn with me to the book that we normally call the Song of Solomon, more uh, correctly entitled the Song of Song, right in the middle of, of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. Uh, it's a tough book to handle, very explosive book, difficult to know how to uh, understand and explain. Mostly misunderstood, I think. I saw a cartoon once uh, in Christianity Today depicting a couple of Israelis looking at a scroll of the Song of Songs with uh, obvious delight and an elderly lady walking by and saying, I don't care if the king did write it, I still don't think it's a very nice book. Uh, which raises the question, what is this book? You read it and it's all about love and sex. And uh, it's very direct. And you wonder what this book is doing in the Bible. This is part of the uh, Old Testament canon, the collection that was, that was received in Israel as inspired. It's part of the Bible that Paul said was inspired of, of God. Well, what do we do with it? How do we explain it? How do we understand it? Um, it, it's, it, it belongs in the collection of Old Testament books that we call wisdom literature, and I've been sampling some of this literature in the past, and have pointed out that, that the wisdom literature has to do with skill at life, learning how to live life purposefully and skillfully and to make your way through life without destroying yourself, without being self-suicidal. This book belongs in the collection because I'm convinced that it teaches a skill at finding real love. Now, isn't that what we want you know, when you're young and growing up? You want, you want to find someone who will love you and care for you. Uh, I heard a story about a man who was rummaging around in some used books at a garage sale, and he found a copy of a book entitled How to Hug, and he thought, boy, this is something I've always been looking for, and he bought it and took it home, opened it with relish, and uh, then discovered that it, he had bought an encyclopedia with the entries from H-O-W to H-U-G, and uh, he was terribly disappointed. But that's what this book is all about. It, it tells us how to hug. So it's all about love, love poetry, basically. Now, that may surprise you because most of, of us, particularly those of us raised in evangelical churches, have been taught that this is an allegory of God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. And certainly it can be taken that way. And I wouldn't in any sense want to discredit those who do. But I don't, for myself, think that that was the purpose of the author, uh, the literary critic, uh, Hirsch put it this way, a text means what its author meant. That's very simple. And our task is to find out what the author meant. And when you read this poetry and you take it at face value, you have to come to the conclusion that what he meant is something entirely different from what we have usually heard about this book. It is not talking about Christ's love for the church, although, as I say, you may take it that way. I think that at its fundamental, most elementary, basic level. It is love poetry. It is all about human love, the love of a man for his wife and a woman for her, for her husband. That's the reason it was written. 
Now, it's idyllic poetry. That is, it's, it's in a rustic setting. It's all about rural life. It's designed to evoke an emotion. It's sometimes very ambiguous. We're not sure what the poet meant. But uh, it's a collection designed to make an impression, a cumulative impression. Ideas begin to collect and we begin to understand what he's talking about. Now, uh, according to the superscription, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, or the Song of, Solom- Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. Uh, you may recognize the expression Song of Songs because it sounds like Lord of Lords and King of Kings and Holy of Holies. And that's a, a, a Hebrew idiom to uh, express the superlative degree of comparison. We have three degrees of comparison in English, absolute, comparative, and, and uh, superlative. We say good, that's absolute, better, that's comparative, and best, that's superlative degree. The Hebrews express the superlative degree by this idiom, by putting the noun, repeating the noun in the genitive. So Lord of Lords means the highest Lord. King of Kings means the King of all Kings. Holy of Holies means the most holy place. And the Song of Songs means the best song, the greatest song. And you might be surprised that Solomon would uh, be so audacious as to title his collection of, of psalms, of songs, the, the greatest songs, the greatest poems that have ever been written. But uh, the inscription was, was uh, put here by someone else. We know that. The wording's different, significantly different. So that this was added later. Uh, the, the, the person who put it there wanted to attribute the song to Solomon. And it is his, no question about it. No reason to deny his authorship. He wrote the book. Uh, you wonder why Solomon, with his uh, bad record of marriages, would write uh, the greatest love, love story ever told. Uh, he did not hit the long ball as a husband, as we well know. And my answer is always the same. What other kind of men are there? None of us hit the long ball. Uh, this is uh, a set of poems designed to teach us how to do that. The collection does not tell a story. I think that's where we often go astray in trying to understand this, uh, this set of poems. It alludes to a story. You have a love story here, and the, the poems sort of collect around the story and look at it from different ways. And it's not one poem. It's a whole set of poems, 31, that I've identified, different poems that all allude to the, the story of a man's love for his wife and her love for her husband. So we need to see it that way. I also need to tell you that this book is explicitly sexual, but it is stated in a symbolic way so that, that sex is not banalized or trivialized or it's not made crass or it's not clinical. It's all highly symbolic. And that's the way they did this sort of thing in the ancient world, ancient Semitic world. And that's what you find in this, in this, uh, in this poem. Now, I'll try to explain as we go along what the symbols mean. But I'm always fearful of doing that because the minute you explain the symbol, you explain it away. It's far much better just to see it. You just get an insight when you read the poetry and you say, Aha! Oh, that's what he's talking about. I see. Without having to explain it. This book will blow the barn doors off. It is that explosive. So, sit tight. Here we go. Hang on. Verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. 
Everyone have it? Let him smother me with kisses. That's literally what it says. The verb, particular root stem that's used indicates either repetition or, or intensity. Either it's kiss me passionately or, or kiss me again and again and again. For your love is more delightful than wine. Now, uh, we don't have too many gender indicators in English, and so it's difficult for us when we read in English translation to know who's speaking. I'll try to tell you who's speaking as we go through, because in Hebrew there's no doubt who's speaking. They have gender markers. They're normally very clear. And in this case, it's the girl, the bride, uh, the lover's spouse who speaks. Let him smother me with kisses. For your love is more delightful than wine. Now, don't pay attention to the shift of pronouns. That's just typical in Hebrew. Hebrew scholars call it analogy, and they switch back and forth all the time. And to us in English, it doesn't make any sense. But we need to understand that it's, it's the woman who's talking to her husband. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name, that is you, your presence, is like perfume poured out. It has a sweet aroma. No wonder the maidens love you, or any woman would love you, is the idea. The word for maidens is the word normally used in the Old Testament for a young woman of marriageable age. Take me away from you, or with you. Let us hurry. The king has brought me into his chamber. Uh, the word that's used for chamber is the word for the little secret dwelling place that they had in, 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 in these Bedouin tents in those days. Remember, this is all set in, in a rustic setting. A rural setting. Solomon was a city boy, but he's, he's writing what C.S. Lewis called golden poetry. These are idols. They're set in a pastoral setting. So it's as though they're wandering through Elysian fields, fields uh, with meadows and flowers and trees and sheep and those sorts of things are the symbols that are used. And she says, take me away to your that secret hiding place where there's security, uh, where where we're, there, there, there's privacy, that special place that's home. And the friends, or the daughters of Jerusalem, the young women whom the bride is instructing, say, we rejoice in you, we will celebrate your love more than wine. That's what this book is. It's a celebration of love, uh, specifically marital love, as we'll come to see. All the terms that are used. The terms of endearment, the terms of relationship are all terms that were used in the ancient world for husband and wife. Verse 5, dark am I, she says, yet lovely. Uh, it was not good to be dark in those days. They did not want to be uh, sun-tanned the way we do. We, we spend endless hours out in the sun trying to get a tan, or you do, and uh, some do, we'll put it that way. Uh, but they, they didn't do that because dark was not desirable. But in her case, she says she was desirable. As black as Keter's goat-haired tents. The Keterites were a tribe that lived in North Arabia that had uh, tents made out of black goat hair. So she was very dark. Uh, as dark as Solomon's fine tapestry. Hebrew parallelism. She's dark. But she sees herself as exquisitely beautiful. But there's this ambivalence. You, you see it all the way through the poem. The idea that she, she's pretty, but she doesn't think she's pretty. She's not sure of herself. She's very uncertain. And, uh, and ill at ease. Do not stare because I'm dark. Occasionally I will read uh, some of my own translations uh, 
just simply because it's a little easier to understand what, what the text is saying. Do not stare because I'm dark. The sun has cast its gaze on me. My mother's sons have hated me. They made me keeper of their, vine- of their vines at my own vineyard. I've not kept. She's unkempt. She, she isn't able to take care of herself, stay out of the sun, shield her face from the sun because she works out in the fields. So you, you have this motif or theme that runs through the, through the collection of poems of uncertainty, ambivalence about our own worth and our own beauty. Uh, this uh, fellow has got it right, though. He understands what women need. He says in verse 8, If you do not know, she had asked the question, Why should I be like a veiled woman that is a stranger beside the flocks of your friends? Why should I wander where you're grazing your flock and, and not be known and recognized and loved by you? He's, he says to her, If you do not know most beautiful of women, that is, if you do not know where I am, follow the tracks of the sheep, and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. I translate verses 9 through 11. Like a mare among stallions, you lure me, my friend. Your face framed with pendants, your neck graced with shells. I'll adorn you with gold and with bright silver bells. Now, you see, this, this, this fellow has got it right. He understands that his, his wife needs to be reassured, that she does not think of herself as beautiful, so she needs to be told that. And we men need to tell our wives that we think they're very special and they're very pretty. And they're very attractive to us. I think motherhood and homemaking goes a whole lot better if the romantic element is, is uh, contained in, in marriage. I'm, I struggle with this. I'm not very romantic. You have to work at it. But it's very important to our wives. They need to hear that they're beautiful, that they're attractive to us. Now, don't say to your husband what this fellow says to his wife. <laughs> they wouldn't understand. He says to her, you have a face like a horse. (laughs) No, not really. No, he didn't. See, here's here's where Hebrew uh, symbolism comes in. Let, Let me tell you what's going on here. This is a very powerful symbol. She would know exactly what he was talking about. And so would anyone else who read this. Let me tell you what's going on. And we know this is true. Uh, By the way, we have dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of love poetry from the ancient world. So we're able to track down a lot of these symbols, and we know what these people are talking about. This is an example of what I said earlier. The symbols are very explicitly sexual, but they are very, very chaste. And uh, uh, as I say, when you try to explain them, you ruin them. You You just have to see them. Now let me tell you what's going on. And we know this is true because they found a wall painting in the city of Thebes in Egypt that tells the story of what happened. It's a historic fact. In 1298, at the Battle of Kadesh, the Egyptians uh, attacked the uh, army of Kadesh with chariots. The Egyptians ruled the ancient world at that time in the 13th century B.C., and they did so because they had chariots. None of the nations had chariots to the extent that the Egyptians had. And these were formidable weapons. They were shock troops. They'd run them into the uh, uh, infantry and just chop the infantry to pieces. And then they 
the rest of the infantry would come through and mop up. It had scythes on their wheels. They were fearsome weapons. And no one could stop the Egyptians for that reason until the Battle of Kadesh. And the Kadeshites, the Prince of Kadesh, came upon an idea. Do you know what he did? Their army was gathered. The Egyptians came over the top of the hill. They ran their chariots down the hill. And the Prince of Kadesh released a mare in heat. Chariots in those days were pulled by stallions in pairs. You are talking chaos. <laughs> the mayor, of course, took off over the hill, and every stallion in the army took off over the hill. And the Kadeshites just chopped the Egyptians to pieces until, as we know from this story, the, a very brave man killed the mayor, and, and the battle went on. But that's what he's talking about. It only takes a modicum of what we might call horse sense to know what he's talking about here. Just read the, read the poem again. Now, the NIV does a terrible thing here uh, with the text. It doesn't say this at all. They're trying to be helpful, but they really uh, mistranslate it badly. Verse 9 says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. But they didn't put mares in chariots in those days. They put stallions in chariots. It would be better to translate like a mare among stallions. You lure me, my dear. See? don't have to explain it. We know what he's talking about. And that's the sort of thing that men ought to be saying to their wives. And by the way, the term that he uses for dear here is one of the terms of endearment that's used throughout the book. It's, it's the word friend in Hebrew. My friend. It's on the basis of this that I wrote the column a few years back that, based on the idea that, that our wife ought to be our best friend. Every other woman according to the book of Proverbs, is a stranger in terms of intimacy and closeness. No one else ought to share our, our secret life, but our wife is our friend, you see? And not only that, a very special kind of friend. You're like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your face framed with pendants, your neck graced with shells. I'll adorn you with gold and with bright silver bells. That's beautiful. Now, uh, uh, I'm not going to take time to read uh, the intervening verses. I simply want to call your attention to the fact that a new set of poems begins with verse 12 of chapter 1 and uh, continues on through chapter 3, verse 5. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 7. He says to her in verse 15, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. You know what a dove's eyes looks like, big brown eyes. How handsome, she says to him, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. She says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. You ever sung the hymn, Jesus, Rose of Sharon? Actually, I think the hymn is wrong in two counts. In the first place, it's not the man who speaks here. It's the woman. She describes herself as the Rose of Sharon. Secondly, the Rose of Sharon is not a, a beautiful plant. They still grow all over Palestine. It's a weed. It's a common weed. You see, this is her uneasiness again about her beauty. I, I'm 
I'm just a wheat. A lily of the valleys. Again, that's another common field flower. He says to her, what a wise man. Like a lily among thorns is my friend among the maidens. It is all the other women of, of marriageable age. I just have eyes for you, he says. You're like a petunia in an onion patch. <laughs> and she says in verse 3, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. That's her response to him. And, you know, as you read through these poems, there's this cumulative idea that, boy, this is great. How do we get in on this deal? How do you get into a love like this? This is fantastic. And he builds, she builds. She's actually the main character in the poem. She builds our expectation. Till you get to verse 7. He says, whoop, whoop, put on the brakes, hold the phone, wait a minute. Daughters of Jerusalem, she says to the young maidens that she's teaching, I charge you, I adjure you, I ask you to swear by the gazelles and the does of the field that you will not arouse or, or keep aroused, awaken, my translation puts it, but don't arouse or keep aroused, it's just the same verb used in a different way, until the time. You see what, it, you see what she's saying? Oh, love is the greatest thing going. This is something you get excited about. This kind of love relationship is something to experience. But don't get too excited until the time. We will give away no love until the time. That's what she said. So the question is, what is the time? Well, we'll find out in a moment. Uh, I'm going to have to hop, skip, and jump through the, through the rest of the book because we're not going to have time to go into a great deal of detail. But in 2.8, she describes her lover coming to her, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a, a young stag. Throughout the, the poetry, her lover is described as a young, vigorous stag prancing across a meadow, darting out into the into the, the open. Again, it's a symbol that's difficult to explain. You, you trivialize it when you explain it, but you can, you can see it in the way she envisions this, uh, this young man. And uh, he, he says in verse uh, 14, this is the man speaking to her, <coughs> pardon me, my dove in the clefts of the rock in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And here begins another theme, a, a, a motif that's going to be carried through these poems. The idea of privacy and secrecy and the exclusiveness of marriage. It's something that's very special and very private. Here described as the cleft of the rock. We'll go into a, a crack in the, in the rock and there you can show yourself to me. And she says in verse 16, my lover is mine. And I am his. He browses among the lilies. It's just a symbol, again, of, of this. If you can picture in your mind, big bull elk or big stag browsing in a, in a meadow. That's a, that's a picture of her lover. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn my lover and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. And then, uh, again, you see, our expectation is aroused. Boy, that's what we're looking for. That's the kind of love that we'd like to have. 
And then the, the bottom line again, chapter 3, verse 5. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until the time. Uh, gazelles and does, by the way, are emblematic in the Old Testament of femininity. Graceful. It's a picture of womanhood. And uh, the point that she's making is that by everything that's feminine, by everything that's womanly, wait, wait. Be self-disciplined. Wait. Don't stir up love until the time. Chapter 4. Let me uh, read for you another translation, my translation of chapter 4. This sort of thing is common in ancient literature. It's called a blazon, B-L-A-Z-O-N, and you find it in Arabic literature and other examples of of Near Eastern uh, love poetry where the man will describe his wife and the wife will describe her man in in symbolic way. And this is... uh, This is the way it goes. Chapter 4, verse 1, if you want to follow along in the text. How fine you are, my dear, how fine. Your eyes like doves that draw my gaze beyond your veil. Your hair is black as goats that frisk cascading down the slopes. Your teeth like new sheared sheep, all clean and white, each paired, complete. Uh, That figure uh, is amusing when you think about it for a moment. He says, your teeth are like new shorn uh, uh, sheep. You know how spotless sheep are when they've just been freshly shorn. He says, that's the way your teeth are. And not only that, each has a pair. In other words, you don't have any gaps. There's nothing missing, which was, I think, a real possibility in those days without the kind of dental uh, help that we have today. Your lips like woven threads of crimson silk, so red, so sweet. Your cheeks a slice of pink, which through your veil I glimpse. Your neck a lofty eminence, adorned with shields, imposing, strong. Your breasts like twin gazelles that graze a field together side by side. When evening comes and shadows flee, I'll climb the hills of fragrant bloom. How fine you are, my friend, how fine my perfect one. And then, verse 12. You are a garden, chapter 4, verse 12. The husband speaks. You are a garden closed and sealed, a spring untrampled sister bride, a paradise of luscious fruits and fragrant trees, all mine, nard and saffron, myrrh and sweet cane, cinnamon and frankincense, fragrant woods and succulents, Living water, welling fountain, spring creek flowing from the mountain. Wake, O winds, and fan my garden, waft its fragrance on your wings. Draw my lover to his garden. And she speaks at this point, uh, 417. Draw my lover to his garden. May he gather up its fruits. Then he speaks again in 5.1. I have come into my garden. I have entered, sister, bride. I have sampled all its pleasures, milk and honey, with my wine. Feast, and the daughters of Jerusalem respond, Feast, my friends, and drink, O lovers, inebriated with your love. And uh, we're introduced at this point to the garden theme. And again, it's difficult to explain 
without explaining it away. But if you stop and think, she's describing herself, or he describes her first, as a private garden rather than a public park. You see the difference? She, she is close to strangers. They're not invited in. She will not let anyone muddy the waters. Her spring is fresh and pure and clean, and she doesn't want anybody to get in there and, and sully and spoil the garden and trample the fruit underfoot, dirty the place up, and ruin it for someone else. It's a private garden. It's hers to keep and to give to whomever she will. And she gives it to him. She says, this is your garden. And here again, you have this theme, see, of of privacy and secrecy. A special place where love is preserved and kept. Now, let's uh, let's go on. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, it's interesting to see how they describe each other because you get a good picture of what this uh, couple looks like as we read through the poetry. Uh, chapter 5, verse 9, the daughters of Jerusalem say, How come your beloved is better than others? You know, what, what, what is it with this man that makes him so special? So in verse 10, she describes it. My lover is radiant and ruddy. Uh, he is... Uh, uh, ruddy, I think, is, a, is an idiom more than anything else for someone who is strong and powerful. We might say macho today, but that really is, is not the correct term. It's someone who's strong and steady, uh, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His, his head is suntanned. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. They're big brown eyes, and uh, they aren't bloodshot. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. He has a curly beard. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. Again, his arms were uh, suntan, set with chrysolite. It's his fingernails. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. Three things are said to be gold, his head and his hands and his feet, because that's the only part of the body that was exposed in those days, is long tunics, uh, short sleeve, but long tunics that they wore uh, prevented uh, any other part of the body from getting tan. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice is its cedars. It's a reference to his... Uh, to his stature is tall like the cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. They say, where's your lover gone, most beautiful women? Which way did your lover turn that we may look for him with you? No, no, she says. No. He is mine. My lover has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies I am my lover's and my lover is mine he browses among the lilies now uh, she has described him in chapter 5 he describes uh, her in chapter 6 beginning with verse 13 now my translation uh, has it come back, come back, O Shulamite? 
Two things I want to observe about that phrase. The word is translated turn back is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament for repentance. It's a Hebrew word shuv. It means to turn around. And this is simply the feminine form of that verb, shuvi, shuvi. Turn around, turn around, turn around. So the daughters of Jerusalem want her to turn around so they can look at her. Now the second thing I want you to note is that she's called a Shulamite, which is interesting. There have been attempts to try to explain this word uh, as a misspelling, uh, and it should be Shunamite since there is a city of Shunam in northern Palestine, or was. But I think the Shulamite is simply... Uh, Solomon's attempt to come up with a feminine form of his name. Solomon's name in Hebrew is Shlomo. And in Hebrew, her name is Shlomit. And it's so close that I think he's playing on words, or she is, in the same way in which the writer of Genesis plays on, on the words for man and woman in, in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we're told that man was made, his name is Ish, and the woman was made, and her name is Isha. Now, Isha is not exactly the feminine counterpart of each. It comes from a different root. But it's close enough that it forms the feminine counterpart of the man. So it's a partnership. Man found in, in male and female form together for life. And that's what I think Solomon is talking about here. He is Shlomo. She is Shlomit, his feminine counterpart. Now, they say to her, turn around, Shlomit. Let's see what you look like. And then he describes her in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Now, I don't know exactly what those figures mean. I haven't been able to figure that out yet, except I'm convinced that, uh, that the ancients liked their women uh, with a little more meat on their bones than uh, we do today, or we think we do socially. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon. They're a deep blue color. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. That's a little startling. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Now let me stop at this point and just make an observation. Is it likely that we could put these words into Jesus' mouth and have him say this to the church? And there's nothing unchaste about any of this description. It just seems to me incongruous that Jesus would talk about the church in this explicitly sexual way. And that's one reason why I think that the original tenet of the author was to talk about human love and not divine love or divine human love. I think this is love poetry. And it's beautiful. It's very explicit. But it's symbolic. We understand what he's talking about. But uh, it's not crass. It's not unchaste. Very explicit. 
Now she says in verse 10, I belong to my lover and his desires for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. You see, this is all idyllic again. It's all cast in a rural setting. It's bucolic. It's shepherd uh, symbols and pictures and forms. There I will give you all my love, literally. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our, every, at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have saved up for you. You see what she's saying? And she ends with the refrain. Oh, I wish that his left hand were under my head and that his right arm would embrace me. But daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by everything that is feminine, by everything that is womanly, do not stir up a love like this until the time. Save it. Discipline, as someone said, is the piercing virtue. Don't give it away before the time. Save it for the one who will give himself to you absolutely without any reservations, without any strings attached, and will give himself to you for life and will love you like Christ loved the church. And when someone like that comes along, you can have it all. But don't give it up before the time. Now notice, in verse 8, the friends say, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. She's just a little tight. What shall we do for our sister to prepare her for marriage? That's what she, they mean by for the day she has spoken for. How shall we get her ready for a relationship like this? Do you see what the poems do? They arouse in us an expectation of the kind of love affair, the kind of love relationship that our heart hungers for. And they say, how should we get our little sister ready for this? She says, if she's a wall, build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, enclose her with panels of cedar. If she's promiscuous, if she's inclined to be open, and by the way, that's an idiom. It's used even today in modern Arabic for a promiscuous woman. She is open. If the gate on her garden is unlocked, if she lets anybody in, protect her, guard her, do everything you can to close that door. But if she's a wall, reward her. The young lady who, who was the heroine of the poem goes on to say, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Do you see what she's saying? A mark of maturity. One mark of maturity. Is chastity, that old-fashioned word that we don't like to use anymore, that C.S. Lewis said the demons are trying to rescue us from. Chastity is the mark of maturity. In other words, the best experience for marriage is to have no experience at all. Now, you won't hear that on the street. And the media is not telling us that. As a matter of fact, uh, we're told that uh, if you're chaste, if you're a virgin at this point in your life, you are just naive 
You are out of it. But where do they get off telling us that? There's absolutely no evidence that uh, premarital sexual experience prepares you for marriage. As a matter of fact, the evidence is to the contrary that most divorced people had a great deal of sexual experience before marriage. A mark of maturity is the capacity to give an unqualified no until someone comes along who will give himself to you totally and absolutely and unreservedly for life and will love you like Christ loves his church. And then you can have everything. You can have what, what she's talking about here. As a matter of fact, she says that's what gave her rest. Uh, she says, I, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers, thus I became in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Let me read uh, another translation. I once was a wall, though my breasts were like towers, and so I found rest with the one that I love. That's how she found the right man. And gentlemen, that's how you find the right woman. You become a man by showing self-restraint, not as Barry Manilow says, by finding out about Desiree in the back seat of your automobile. Not how you become a man. It's discipline, self-restraint. Never heard anyone. As a matter of fact, it's the best preparation for marriage. And when that marriage comes along, you, you, you can give yourself. When that man comes along, when that woman comes along, that's the right person you'd give yourself unreservedly. And then you'll find rest. Uh, some of you I know are thinking it's too late. <laughs> it's way too late. I w- w- wish I'd heard this 20 years ago or 10 years ago or last week. It's too late now. But it's never too late. The door to your garden has a lock on the inside and, and you can shut it now and and God can can cause all the plants to regrow in your garden and he can freshen the spring and he can make you just like you were as a matter of fact that's what Paul says to the church in Corinth that had all sorts of illicit sexual activities being condoned and and when they came to Christ their lives were changed and he said I have espoused you to Christ as a pure virgin Great symbol for what God can do with a life that's, that's been ruined and trampled and sullied, dirtied up. It, it can all be set, right? So the best preparation for marriage is to shut the door right now, this morning, and lock it on the inside until the right man comes. She says at the end, Chapter 8, verse 11. My king had a vineyard whose vines are worth silver. He gave it to keepers to care for its fruit. Or as the NIV puts it, Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. We don't know exactly where Baal Hamon was, but it was a physical location in Palestine, very fruitful location apparently, because he had a vineyard that produced a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. It was a very, uh, it was a good vineyard. And Solomon uh, sold the fruit. That's all right, because that's just a vineyard. But uh, she says in verse 12, My own vineyard is mine to give. 
The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. Or as I I translate, I have a vineyard, its fruit is my own, it belongs to my lover to have and to keep. As Longfellow put it, like Diane's kisses, unasked, unsought, love gives itself but is not bought. You cannot buy this kind of love. And you don't have to sell out for anything less than the real thing. So just wait until God brings the right person along. It's all right to have high expectations because God wants us to have a rich and full and vibrant love life. It's all right. It's all right. But don't stir it up until the time. Don't give any love until it's time. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful and yet painful uh, study this is. Because we realize how, uh, how lightly we have taken our sexuality and the extent to which we have, we have cheapened it and, uh, and sold out for something less than the real thing. But uh, we're so grateful that we can start anew every day, we're told, is a new beginning. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that we understand to be a, a daily process of renewal. And so what's past is past, Lord. It's what you died for. And we accept forgiveness for it. And, and thank you that we can go and sin no more. And uh, we want that strength, we want that power, we want that purity. Our hearts long for it. And so we thank you for the forgiveness of the past, and we lay hold of you for the future, knowing that you never ask us to do anything that's impossible. Keep us from believing the lies that we're given day after day in the magazines and the movies and the other media that tell us that we'll never find ourselves unless we give ourselves away today. Give us the patience to wait. Surround us with your love. Be to us what we need for this day. Give us that sense of security and well-being and contentment that comes from letting you be our lover and meet our every need. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.